Hi, I'm David Crouch, and welcome to Episode 2 of Digital Work Futures, an Island's Perspective. We have our own intro and extra music now, compliments of local Salt Spring musician Ashton Bachman from his song Play Me Music. As a reminder, this podcast is a deep investigation of work changes such as work from home, remote work, live where you want, and remote entrepreneurship, told through interviews with people who have successfully made significant work and lifestyle changes living here on the Gulf Islands. My guest on this episode, David Rumsey, has been doing his chosen vocation, technical business translation, and working from home for almost 30 years. He has some great insights into remote work and also how to live where you want. I learned that the translation business has many similarities with other B2B knowledge-based services. It's relevant to my day job at my company, Aid, where our goal is to help entrepreneurs start and succeed with their expert-based businesses. David also talks about two major digital work future issues. As remote work globalizes, what happens to compensation levels and how will digital transformation and artificial intelligence impact various types of work? So let's just jump into the interview. Pleased to welcome David Rumsey. Hello, David. Hey, David. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So let's just jump right in. Just give us a little background on uh, what is your vocation? Well, I work actually as a freelance translator. Um, and a translator is somebody who works with uh, written documentation in different languages. And we get that, uh, those, that's those documents sent to us via the internet. And we translate them into what we call the target language. In my case, from uh, the Scandinavian languages, Swedish, Danish, Norwegian, um, as well as German. And then I write them in English. And uh, I've been doing this for almost 30 years. Um, and so that's uh, essentially the profession. A lot of people confuse uh, translators with interpreters. Uh, interpreters work in the, they're the ones that you, the high, the glamour job that you see when they want to, you know, when Putin and Trump are meeting and they're wondering what the little interpreter is writing down, that's people who work with the spoken word. And that's a completely different skill. Um, but that also does uh, increasingly is done remotely as well. So I can talk about that if we want to. Was it was it remote to begin with? Like, so you said you, you've been doing this for thirty years. Was it always remote, or is it always yes. been a remote type of a job? Yes, actually, yes. And I saw I know some old timers who used to use typewriters. And what it would be originally, it's sort of it has followed the technology. Originally, people started out. It was somebody local in your town, you know, or city or wherever it was. You had some patent in German that had to get translated and they would courier it over to a guy. He would type it out on his electric typewriter and then courier it back. When I got into the game, computers had just started. So when I started doing this, um, I kind of got recruited. I was in graduate, graduate school, graduate school. Somebody from a neighboring town, city contacted me and said, you know, can you work in Danish? Can you translate something from Danish? I said, oh yeah, sure. It was a, you know, a manual about a garbage disposal unit and a study on, you know, processing garbage through a garbage disposal unit versus tossing it into the landfill and all this stuff. But um, at that point, we didn't have email. We didn't have, uh, everything was sort of done via fax. He couriered me the job. I did the job. I had an old Northgate computer with floppy disks and I learned how to deliver the job in WordPerfect 
via a bulletin board, you know, where you had the old dial up, you know, and then you would load it up that way. You know, a few years later, uh, CompuServe and AOL arrived. And then um, clients used to work through CompuServe and AOL. And um, then the web arrived. The industry itself grew and grew and grew. And now, you know, it's it spans the globe. I mean, there are just right. databases right. of these guys all over the world. So I use so a million to start different with tools. It, so to start with, it was it was more local. Was it they found you when you're graduating from university or something and they were relatively uh, um, immediate to your location? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I did, uh, I worked as a project manager for a few years, which, uh, in a translation agency or what they used to call translation bureau. So you're working in a company that is having, you know, is going to China and you need to have your PowerPoint presentation in Chinese. You send it to this bureau, you know, the project manager there has a, you know, a Rolodex full of people locally or, um, you know, relatively local that they can look up and they would email it to them or courier it however they, however they wanted to do it and deliver it via bulletin board or however it was. Um, and that's still largely the case. The databases are just much, much larger now. But when there wasn't the internet, it was by and large done through local courier and stuff. And it was extremely expensive uh, to get things translated and people didn't do it very often. And now, you know, the whole world is on that database and you can ping something from wherever you want. My customers are all over the globe. It has its pluses and minuses. So is this an accidental vocation that uh, somebody uh, got you when you were at uh, university or is this something? How did you get interested in it? Yeah, it is. uh, It was completely an accidental vocation. Totally. I mean, I was on a PhD program to teach Scandinavian history and I had gone to graduate school in Scandinavia. And uh, some, like I said, this guy called up the department of Scandinavian studies and said, Hey, is there anybody in there who can translate, who can read Danish? You know? And I said, well, I, I read Danish easily. And so he sent me the stuff and um, it paid a lot better than it did as a, as a teaching assistant, that's for sure. And so I just kept, I just kept doing it and I kept doing it. And then eventually um, my partner and I moved to a rural location. Then it became a full-time job basically because there weren't any jobs um, in the early nineties in that, in that rural location. And I worked from my home uh, via a dial-up modem and a hot thermal fax machine and the whole nine yards. So yeah, it, it was accidental. And a lot of a lot of translators, there's sort of two groups. One group are the people who fall into it accidentally. Yeah. Increasingly there's more uh standardization. So there are more university degrees and that kind of thing that you can specialize in translation. It's kind of a growing field and you know there's a whole there's a several certifications you can take, which I've taken. And right. but uh it is by and large, a weird job. And when I tell people what I do, they kind of give me a funny look like, oh, you, is there any demand for that? Or because they're thinking I'm, you know, do you work in the courts? Do you work in hospitals? No, that's an interpreter. Right. right. You know, so it took a while even for my mother to understand what the hell I did. So. Right. <laughs> so at what point does Salt Spring enter into the picture here? Well, um, you know, the beauty of it was by the time that we decided to, um, I had, I was actually in uh, grad school down the U.S. And then um, by the time we decided to move back to Canada, it was relatively easy to uh, be able to take this job anywhere. Because by that point, I had a, a steady client base and I knew what I was doing and I was familiar with 
what it's like to work at home and to right, run your own right. business and stuff. So uh, it was, and, and Salt Spring was the perfect location because it had actually more, uh, more community and more easy access. Where I lived before, I'm a dual citizen. I was born and raised in Canada. But my, my parents were American. And I, you know, uh, I ended up down there sort of as a fluke. Uh, and we lived in a really remote place. I mean, we lived on 120 acres in the rural Wisconsin. You know, right. it was about, right. you know, an hour's drive to get to your closest friend kind of thing. Right. And so uh, that was a totally different experience. So for Salt Spring, it was like, oh, my God, it's, you know, there's a, a vi- vibrant community here. And it's a good balance between being able to work at home and then, you know, connecting with the community that's right nearby. And how did you find out or know about Salt Spring? Well, like many people, uh, it's you know it's another co- accidental accidental thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> to be honest, we went to uh, we went on vacation. We decided to renovate the kitchen in our house, our old farmhouse, and so we took a trip down. Uh, we flew to California and we drove up the coast from California up to Victoria, and we were taking the uh, ferry across from Victoria to Vancouver and. It was a beautiful day. Ultimately, you know, uh, we're a gay couple, and the the Canadian government had just recently allowed uh, gay couples to immigrate because prior right. to that, we could never move because we didn't have any legal status in relation to each other. You need to have somebody who's an immediate family member to sponsor you. Otherwise, you have to apply as an individual. And this became this opened up a huge possibility, and there was a big article in the Globe Mail on the ferry we were reading. And uh, my partner at the time turned to me and said, well, would you want to live out here? And it was like a beautiful July day, sun is shining, you're out on the ferry, we're you know, just outside of Full Foot Harbor, kind of. And I was right. like, who the hell wouldn't want to live here? <laughs> you know? right. yeah. So, yeah. But uh, we came back several times uh, to see what it was like in the winter. And compared to a Midwest winter, it was gorgeous, you know, green and lush. We just scouted all around the big island and I wanted to go find this Buddhist monastery. Apparently, there's a Buddhist monastery on Salt Spring. And so I found that in the Lonely Planet guidebook. And we ended up on the island and completely fell in love. And we were like, this is where we're going to be. This is this is it. Right, so. right. So you, you didn't really look at a whole bunch of different places and narrow it down. You sort of were drawn to it from the uh, uh, from the starting with the tourism. Or did you actually look abroad? Oh, we did. I, I we did. We did. We looked on the big island. You know, oddly enough, right. um, we had been coming from the Midwest. You know, if you're from the prairies, 120 acres is not much. You know, all of our right. neighbors had like 400, 500 acres. We had what they called a farmette, you know, at 120 acres. So we were thinking, okay, well, we need something like that because my partner does agriculture and we had raised sheep right. and pigs and all the rest of it. You know, so we went up and down. Um, you know, we went up as far as uh, Courtney Comox kind of thing, looking at- uh, right different properties. And then we just came to Salt Spring sort of on a fluke because I'd read about this monastery and we ended up uh, driving all over up where it is kind of thing and found some land for sale. And that's when we decided to to pull the trigger. Right. Just changing tact here a little bit. So you've obviously been working at home for a long time. What do you think of, because you, you read a lot right now about people have been working at home for three or six months, you know, because of the pandemic and suddenly going, I got it. They either love it or hate it. So what's your experience having done it for basically your entire vocational life? Yeah. You know, it's funny to, to read the stuff because it's like, 
when the pandemic broke out, I was sort of like, well, nothing really changes for me that much. (laughs) So, you know, I, and I gave basically two kind, two key tips, you know, the one, and if, if you're lucky, you can do this, you know, the, the one of course is to be able to separate your working life from your, your living life, your regular life. And that is finding a place where you can have your work and have that place be relatively comfortable, but also have it be separate in some way, shape, or form. So that at the end of the day, when you walk out the door, you can close the door and close it off and try, at least try to stay away because it's right. very easy to end up, you know, just peeking for your email and the next thing you know, you're working for four hours again. So, right. you know, physical space is really key. And the other is, uh, you know, social space, actually. That's actually gotten a little better. You know, when I started out, it was way more isolating because there was nothing like social media. There was no Facebook or anything like that. And Mm -hmm. there was no video conferencing. There was nothing like that. You were truly on your own kind of thing. And that that was rough. That was more challenging than it is now. You know, people complain about social media and everything. But in a way, you can have conversations via messenger that are going on. Um, You know, you can watch YouTube video. There's tons of distractions, (laughs) almost too many distractions. But it's also possible for you to have some connection a little bit with groups. A lot of times there are all kinds of translator groups now where we chat about terminology. You know, I just pop a question out there. I was doing a, a documentation on beauty pageants, believe it or not. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just popped a question out there and I have some other colleagues in Scandinavia and, and here in the US or in Canada, everybody sort of chimes in and it leaves you, makes you feel a little bit more connected. Um, and you have to kind of, you have to adjust your expectations uh, for what for what that means. There isn't as much, I, I sort of view Facebook and those and Twitter and, and Messenger as sort of like a virtual water cooler, you know, in a traditional company setting, you can kind of hang out and talk to other people um, around the water cooler. And this is essentially kind of that way. Do you find that it works and is satisfying to you? I mean, one of the reasons they started Salt Spring Digital years ago was to get people into physical contact because, again, a lot of them are working by themselves. But do you find that social media works for you to to, to meet the uh, affiliation requirements? Um, I, I do kind of feel that. I was a member of the Salt Spring Digital, and it's sort of like, to, to me, you know, it works great if you can connect with somebody, you know, if there's a, a a digital group and that group is active, say there's a Facebook group or something active, and then you meet the person, you know, in in the flesh, either at a conference or some sort of, uh, you know, in person gathering, that sort of adds. That's like a bonus kind of thing. Right. But you, right. it's it's still there's still value in connecting with somebody uh, virtually. And um, I, I noticed that here on Salzburg too. I'm involved in a Buddhist group, and we do uh, virtual. Uh, meditation classes. And some people really want that one-on-one connection. Other people really enjoy the ability to just tune in uh, via their computer or tablet, hear the talk, and then we have a greater access to more people from all over, you know, Vancouver up and down the West Coast kind of thing. So it has its pluses and minuses. You have to adjust to a certain extent. I think there is some adjustment. If you've worked your whole life in an office and you know, gone out to lunch with everybody and sat around the water cooler. It's going to take a bit right. of adjustments, but right. But in your case, you this has been your career, really. 
Yeah, I it mean, it's been remote and work from home. Pretty much, yeah. I did. I did some consulting for a while. Um, I worked for a large uh, software company, and we were. I was uh, a project manager to help translate the software into different languages, something they call localization or internationalization. And so I had that cubicle life. That was. I did it sort of off and on for about four years. The benefit was it was great pay kind of thing, and there were people around there. The drawback was I didn't have the freedom to kind of choose when I wanted to work. And so I I tended to take a lot of vacation. I think I owed them money at the end because I'd taken so much vacation. (laughs) And then I found it, it could be more challenging to be productive when you really needed to be, you know, because people might interrupt you or whatever, and that was harder to to get stuff done. And so I, you tend to work more focused when you really need to focus, and then you're more relaxed when you're really relaxed kind of thing. Whereas right. uh, in an office setting, it seemed to me it to be a little bit more, you know, kind of not too fast, not too slow enough to get stuff done. And, you know, the whole time, a lot of people, at least in the software business, a lot of people are always updating their resume because they're waiting for, you know, some reorganization that's going to send them out of that particular work, you know, out of that, out of that position. And then so people kind of come and go. So, right. So now in, in the translation business here, do you have to generate your own business? Like, do you have to go out and, and market and sell yourself? I know you've been doing it for a long time and probably people know you, but, or do you get it through agencies? So you can do one or the other. So you can target um, what they call the end customer, you know, which is a, a one-on-one relationship with somebody. Um, and it depends on the language combination. So let's right. say you're working from, you know, English into French or something like that, or French into English, and you're working for the Canadian government, you know, the, you have a pretty stable set of product, you know, it's going to be a, a relatively stable amount of, of jobs out there. Um, right. Or you could be working for, let's say you're working German into English and you're you know, you're specializing, most translators specialize in automotive, you know, and you might be one of the remote translators for Mercedes-Benz or uh, BMW. And that takes a fair amount of time and energy. And, you know, then you really are doing a one-on-one consultation thing. Your reputation is on the line. Whatever you deliver has to be perfect, absolutely perfect. And you're in effect kind of an individual agency. Um, A lot of translators, I would say probably most translators work through agencies because you basically can submit your resume, you know, and the agency will contact you via, usually via email or, you know, or or telephone or Skype or wherever and say, look, I've got this project for, uh, you know, shipbuilding. Do you know that much about it? Yes, I've done one or two and you can, you might work on it individually. They might pair you up with somebody else. Um, And that gives you flexibility. I can say, you know what, I'm taking two weeks off and so I'm not available and they find someone else kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a tap, believe it or not, you know, as the, as the industry grows and it grow, it's growing, everybody's afraid that we're all going to lose our jobs from Google translate. And actually what happens is customers use Google, they they use the instant look, instant translation services. And then they discover that, you know what, it's not perfect just because it looks right. Doesn't mean it is right. And so the demand for this service has actually grown because, you know, my customers expect that they're going to be able to deliver everything bilingual. And so there's a huge demand. And so 
it's it's so not that's interesting. Bad, I'd yeah. like to pursue that in a second, but let's just go back. So do you do you generate your own work? Or are you mostly going through an agency? I mostly go through agencies. It's a mix. I would say maybe fifteen uh, percent of my stuff are individuals, and I'm certified to do government types of uh, translation. So I have a special stamp, and I mean, if you've got uh, you know, court documents, or you've got special kinds of uh, immigration or some other type of uh, educational documentation, I can do those. And I do those mostly for individuals. But then the funner stuff, I work more for agencies. And those agencies are all over the place. I mean, well, mo- mo- most of them are in Scandinavia for me in particular, but I'll work with agents. Some agencies now have offices 24-7. So the same project will show up you know, in London, and then they'll go to bed, and then you'll get the offer again from the manager in New York and Los Angeles, and then Melbourne, and it'll go around. You know, right? But uh, it's 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 um it's easier to deal with. I don't have to deal with the end customer who has. I, I did a recent large job for uh, an immigration case on an individual, and there's a lot of follow up questions, and you're using a lot of time. And sometimes it's you actually make you can charge more. But when you consider all the time involved in marketing and the follow-up and all the rest of it, sometimes it's actually uh, more profitable to work through an agency. How do you get paid? Is it based upon an hourly rate or is it based upon a page or word count? How does yeah, that work? It's based, on a, it's based on a word count. Some people work based on what we call the source word. So somebody gives you a document in German, the number of German words, and then right. uh, the target count is the English words. It varies more and more. It's actually changing a lot. Germany, by interest, since their words are so big, they do it like the number of keystrokes. They do it by keystroke because each word, you know, these words are so huge, you wouldn't make much money. Um, But other people do increasingly, and I, I will do more per hour, especially if I'm working for an agency that does want me to use automated translation, where they plug you into a database of previous translations that say they've worked for some automotive client and they have a database of of uh, what we call a translation memory, a database of, t- of translations that they've been used previously. And so when you're working in the different software, there's a lot of different software you can use that will bring up the source text line by line. And it will show you, it said, you know, this source text was translated this way two years ago, or the closest translation it can find is this way. And so you you can edit the existing translation. You can work a lot faster that way. And for those kinds of projects, it's more effective to charge hourly because uh, sure. you're not necessarily working on a per word basis. Yeah, you can see that. Yeah, it's a, so, it's a huge topic. Getting back to the uh, the effect or the possible effect of automation on your particular vocation, I, I think I heard that there's competing uh, forces here. One, of course, is software that can uh, start to automate the translation. But then the second force I thought I heard you say is that nowadays people just expect everything to be translated. And then once they've used it, they found it's not good. There's actually more demand. So you've got something that's taking demand away for translators. But the other one is that people now want much more translated and finding that the automation isn't that good. Yeah, it's it's similar. We had a similar issue back in the 90s when, or, you know, the longstanding thing was they would give, you know, a project to their bilingual employee and tell them to translate, you know, a safety manual for a medical device. You know, well, she works for the company. She must know. Well, you know what? It's actually, 
It's one thing to know another language. It's a totally different skill to write in that other language for medicine or for technology or for software. And so, you know, the secretary gets in over uh, his or her head and it blows up on them. Then they, you know, whoever's bright idea was that, uh, you know, gets in a heap of trouble. Then they decide they're going to do it the right way next way. And they call and they call the translation agency um, because it's a lot more difficult, way more time consuming than people realize. You know, it takes a long time to write a manual on your own, even straight out in English. And you have to think about doing that plus figuring out what it's going to sound like in German or French or whatever it is. And the same applies for the automated translations through uh, Google Translate and those sorts of things. It's all based on, I can talk for hours about how that works, but the, the algorithms are basically based on the volume of the data that's behind it. So, uh, you know, Google Translate's only as good or any of these tools are only as good if you have a lot of really good data that's behind it, a lot of existing right. translations. And the context really screws everything up because you can have one sentence that gets translated one way in one particular context, but it would be translated differently in a different context. So in the end, you know, if you're ever going to, if it's anything involving kind of money or liability, you need somebody to be able to proof that or to double check that uh, to make sure it's saying what you want it to say. Even times, you know, when people just run something through, they just want to know what it says. It might look right, but it, unless you know both languages, you don't know where it's made the mistakes. And that's the challenge because right. they, right. they work on probabilities. And so the machine says the most likely probability of this translation is this sentence and it generates it. But if you don't know what the source word says, it will generate uh, something completely off the off the wall. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting because I use a lot of voice to text in my work. But I find that if I'm just using ordinary subjects, the voice to text is pretty good. But as soon as I get slightly technical, even with me training it, it still is not very good. Yeah, it's. I, I think also I, I compare it a lot of times. To like Google Maps, you know, it's like you can find the, you know, you can use Google Maps that will tell you how to get there. But, you know, it actually might be a really, it might not be the most scenic route to get there necessarily. Right. Or uh, even a safe route. Or even a safe route, you know. And uh, the voice voice recognition software is a great example. I actually use that increasingly for translation because it it does give you really smooth sounding translations and it's very, very fast, faster than typing. But I have to like triple check. I mean, quadruple check the output because it never shows any, it, you never get any typos, right? Because whatever it heard, it heard as an, as an actual word. So you have right. to like really be careful about what you deliver because you won't see the error. They won't pop out at you as much. No, you're right. I have to really force myself when I use it to double check right away. Cause the number of times I then gone back to something and going, what the heck is this? Because right. you then forget what you're trying to say. Right. And, and of you, course it got something else. Yeah. And I've, I've discovered it takes a little longer, but sometimes I'll use a, like word or for whatever, we'll have a read aloud function. So right. sometimes that works cause you'll hear it, you know, this particular vocation has allowed you to live where you wanted to live for a large part of your life. Yeah, I've been very, very fortunate. I've been very, very fortunate in that regard, yeah. How long have you been on Salt Spring? Uh, We moved here in 2006, about 2006. So 
We uh, were living in Victoria for about a year and a half. We built a home here. And so it took right. some time. And um, it's been it's been really great. You know, it's always difficult on summer days like today when it's sunny out there and I'm sitting in here typing away on a keyboard. That drives you kind of crazy. It's just nice to know that there are other people around. I, I won't deny it. The ugly truth is there are weeks when I never get into town. You know, I, I might be really slammed with a ton of work and it's a bit of feast and famine, you know, and so I'll be feasting for two whole weeks before I get a chance to take a break and right, go into right. town or get off the rock. And that's that's another thing that people fall into because you easily think you're never going to get another call. Yeah, that's nature of the beast. But right. at some point, you have to realize you're going to kill yourself if you don't take a break, you know, because you always keep thinking, oh, this is going to be the last one ever, you know, and uh, you have to have faith that it will come back. I think that's one of the downsides that some of the newer freelancers who are working at home and remote from any other connection are finding is that they'll just work and work and work, particularly now when they don't know whether they're going to continue to get work coming down the pipes. Right. And then you and then you burn out. And then you're like, I can't handle this because I haven't, exactly. haven't left the office or haven't let the, left the basement in you know four weeks. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, that's going to drive you crazy. And you have exactly. to, you know, the two big errors are one is you overwork and the other is you underprice. You think, oh, I'm a freelancer. No one's going to hire me. I'm just starting doing this. And so you price yourself for nothing. Right. Well, once they, once you've charged a f- nothing, they're going to, you know, the moment you, it's really difficult to raise your rates on a long-term yes, customer. Yes, that, that's absolutely true. Yeah, no, yeah. that's... Uh, in in my business and 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 one of the things i'm doing is 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 making a change to actually helping people start up in the in the services business that the knowledge based services business is pricing is so tricky and once you've set a rate once for a client it's really hard to raise it other than saying oh you know we have a little annual 1% increase you know right. it's really hard to do it and they're so in my industry they're you know, it gets down to the quarter cent, you know, kind of thing. Sure. Where they are half cent kind of deal. And I go through well, customers, you know, some come and some go. And it's it's difficult to get let ones go, but um, you, you have to be willing to do that. One of the other worries that people have, say, with where work is going with a lot more of remote workers from anywhere is that people from less developed nations can then drive the price down. Are you seeing any of that in your work? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We see that all the time, especially now. You know, I'm fortunate I work in a language combination that, you know, most of my competitors are in Scandinavia or Germany, right? which is right. a high-wage place, you know, but there are people, there's nothing to stop uh, an Indian with good writing skills and has learned a little German from being able to translate. Uh, and that is a challenge. Uh, generally, it's a question then of quality. You know, it's it's... Again, it, this isn't a skill that you just try and wing your way through because you will quickly get your head in over water. You know, I had a few when I first started in my career. I had a, I took some jobs that were way over my head talking about stuff I really didn't know, and it right. shines through. You know, and you, you you they never come back to you once you've blown that up. So sure. there is a challenge um, for low wage. There's definitely pressure in there that tends to be more within a. I would say it's more within a low market, low price market. So both 
the customer and the provider are both in those markets. So you might have, say, for example, in this Eastern Bloc, somewhere like that, you know, you might have um, people who are doing, you know, translations for really low rates, but they're finding, you know, the customer wants these really low rates, they can't pay very high rates. And so they tend to find vendors uh, within within that market who can live off that rate. While it does happen, and if you get onto these databases, you know, because now there are association databases, and then there are these sort of uh, open databases of translators where you can find an individual translator all around the world, and it can be intimidating. You think, oh my God, you know, there's all these people in the, I don't know, in the Ukraine or in India or who who might be competing on the same field. Um, you have to remember that they're usually servicing a very particular market in that right in that market kind of thing right um although you know you did see some of that with uh tech writers i, I know tech writers had a challenge um, a lot of that work went over to you know they would they would basically have the tech writing done in india and then uh you know uh, the tech writers in north america would edit it the whole time polish it up right yeah yeah Okay, well, thanks very much, David. That was a great uh, insight into uh, your uh, life and your your vo- vocation and and how uh, how it's been. Thanks very much for talking with me. Yeah, it was great. No problem. Well, that was a very interesting chat with David Rumsey. I learned so much about the translation business. I also thought there were some interesting comparison and contrast with his experiences and Holly McDonald's. On our next episode. We're going to get a completely different perspective from a graphic artist named Ben Fry. You're listening to Digital War Futures, an island's perspective. <laughs>